the other thing that irritates me is when you have the likes of Elon Musk and he just comes out and makes a tweet and crypto goes 25% one way and then he comes out and says something the opposite two weeks later, you know, an asset, an asset with real intrinsic value shouldn't behave like that. Hello, Internet. Thanks for deciding to tune into this podcast. Things have been going really well recently, and I can only thank my audience for deciding to tune in. In the coming weeks, I have some really huge and fascinating interviews set for release, so please be sure to like, share, and subscribe if you want to help out the show, and make sure you don't miss any of the amazing content. Before we get started, I've just got a few short messages. First off, the first round of crowdfunding for my book, To The Moon, The GameStop Saga, has now come to an end. Thanks to everyone who contributed. I still have 20 spaces left in the acknowledgements for names, so if you want to pre-order the book and get your name in there as part of telling the wonderful story of The GameStop Saga, you'll find links to pre-order the book in the description below. Next up, I have two sponsors for the show today. First off, ExpressVPN, the internet's number one VPN. You can protect your browsing data from your internet provider and from prying eyes by going to ExpressVPN today and getting 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN. Use it for privacy, safety, or just to watch Netflix shows from another part of the world. You'll be stunned at the amount of extra content you can access just by setting your location to somewhere new. Secondly, I have a wonderful podcast to tell you about. But no, it's not this one. Comedy and science are two concepts that naturally go together? Well, maybe not always. But Australian comedian Anthony Genot has found a way to fuse these two concepts. Highbrow Drivel is a podcast where scientists and academics meet comedians in a light-hearted and informative free-for-all chat. Each week, Anthony is joined by a new stand-up comedian and a new expert to discuss their field. Some of the latest episodes have included how the brain understands sound, what is burnout and why does it happen, and my personal favourite of the last few months, did hippies ruin psychedelics? Some of these issues can be difficult to tackle, so I personally love the combination of comedy and science that Highbrow Drivel provides. It makes me laugh, and teaches me new things at the same time, like a clown teaching philosophy. So if you want to hear the big topics of our generation, the brain, space, climate science, psychedelics, and beyond, discussed with both levity and humor, be sure to check out Highbrow Drivel wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find links for everything in the description below. Anyway, here's the podcast. So, um, hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am here with John Coffey, the former head of trading at BMP Paradise. For 30 years, you worked there. Uh, you've now moved into uh, volunteer consulting and philanthropy and uh, enjoy your life as a private investor. So, uh, John, welcome to the Thank show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. So uh, as I mentioned before we started, I, I kind of came across you on LinkedIn after uh, quite a few people that I knew or, or I'm connected with or follow had shared a few of your posts and stuff. And it seemed to be all in the vein of things that I'd been looking at sort of generally uh, of right. late. 
So uh, yeah, I was really interested to chat to you. But the the thing that really stood out to me was your 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 sort of philanthropic work and and some of the stuff you do there. So um, do you want? Should we just start with that? And you, do you want to talk about um, the shelter for your, uh, for abused women and children and and how you got involved with that? Sure. Um, I suppose I bought a holiday home in Florida about uh, ten years ago uh, in Naples on the west coast of Florida. A uh, beautiful place to be. Um, I was fortuitous enough to be able to retire at 52. So my time was my own, myself and my wife's time. And once our kids grew up, we had the opportunity to go and spend our winters in Florida. Uh, having more spare time on my hands and having been, I suppose, very lucky to be able to be financially in the position that I've been in, I kind of felt, uh, you know, really it was time to try and give something back. And I, in recent years, I started to look around and see what charities I could volunteer for, uh, both in Ireland and in Florida. Um, I came across the Shelter for Abused Women and Children because some very good friends of ours in Naples were heavily involved in it. Um, I suppose you would probably know from, from Ireland, Josh, uh, and in other countries, a lot of charities get a bad name sometimes because... You know, sometimes the CEO was dipping into the funds. Sometimes they're not very efficient in the way they spend the money. And when you work in markets like I do, you get a very cynical perspective. So when I got involved with any charity or if I donated to any charity, the first thing I would look at would be to see how much of the money actually goes to the cause. And in the case of the shelter, uh, I think it's roughly 87%. I also look to see whether or not the CEOs are taking whopping big salaries and so on, and that's not really the case either. Uh, and the third thing I suppose I look for is, um, you know, a lot of charities, unfortunately, I think they create a dependency culture. And you have the beneficiaries of the charity, you know, in some respects may become freeloaders where they don't make any effort to get out of the situation they're in because things are put on a plate for them. And I don't really agree with that either. So the shelter really ticked all the boxes. They, you know, they look after people who are victims of domestic violence, mostly women and children. Occasionally there are men as well. uh, And people who are victims of human trafficking. They have two um, facilities, uh, one in Naples and one uh, just outside Naples. And uh, these are wonderful places. Uh, They're places where the women and children can be safe. They have all kinds of facilities in terms of um, educating them, uh, looking after children. They provide them, you know, individual units or or houses to live in. Uh, It's extremely secure. But they do things, for example, they insist that the people staying there pay one third of the rent themselves. They insist that the people are either in education or gaining education or trying to get back into the workforce. So they really help people to rehabilitate themselves from the problems that they have. And uh, I've met a number of wonderful people there. So that's why I got involved. Um, If you like to know what I do, you know, I try if I can, if I'm helping uh, in a volunteering capacity to try and do something where I can use the skills I have. Sometimes you find that you can't do that. For example, one of the first charities I volunteered for uh, was in Dublin, where it was a homeless uh, shelter. And I was literally just cleaning up tables and and serving tables to homeless people uh, for their their lunch and dinner. 
Uh, but in this particular case, I work with the grants manager who is responsible for looking after the funding of the, ch the shelter. And my role, which is one I probably created for myself, was to try and identify new and additional sources of funding for them to then go out and try and interact with those people using the network that I have and trying to build that network. And in the hopes that then, you know, banks, financial institutions, corporations would partner with the shelter and provide some funding and get some good profile, maybe some tax relief and other things on their side as well to make it a win-win. And I suppose that's where LinkedIn comes in. You know, LinkedIn to me was a good vehicle. We all know how everybody hates cold calling. And I feel at least with LinkedIn, if you try to connect with someone on LinkedIn, they have the opportunity to look at your profile first and see whether they want to accept your connection or not. They know a bit about who you are before they make that decision. And you kind of hope then you may have a better chance of interacting with somebody in that respect. Hmm. I really love what you've said there about how they encourage rehabilitation. And, and you're, you're also 100% right on, on uh, charities sort of perhaps not spending the money efficiently yeah. um, or people becoming dependent on them. Um, for example, I was speaking to um, a veteran recently who told me that if all of the UK's veteran charities uh, just liquidated themselves and sold up, they could give £2 million to every veteran in the UK. Wow. Um, yeah, which is a stunning yeah. amount yeah. of money. Now that includes selling off the property and sure. stuff that they own, but it's still, um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's, it's a, it's a stunning figure. And, uh, he works in the, in doing charity for veterans right. because yeah, he's, so if he's been there and well, done he knows that, the and door. It, it's, a, it's a, yeah, he, he knows exactly what, what it's like to have, have been there. So it's, um, yeah, so it's great to hear that you, you find a, a charity that, that, that you're able to, to contribute to that you feel is is uh, using their money yeah. well and, and helping to, to rehabilitate people and give them a life beyond um, the, the bad situation that they're in. It's also actually um, something that what, what's happened to you in that you, you worked in, um, in finance as a trader and then took your, yeah, the you've retired early and been able to use that hard work that you sort of did over those 30 years to, to take some time to to spend it on on trying to make the world a little bit of a better place, which is and it's actually a theme that has, has come up quite a lot in the the community that I'm looking at for the book that I'm writing about, about the GameStop All saga, right. is that there's a lot of people who are saying, well, when we're rich, we're going to, yes. you know, give yeah. to charity right. and help out. Um, but it's great to see someone who's actually taken that and, and said, well, you know, I've been I've been lucky enough to to do well in this life and and I want to give something back. So so much respect to, uh, to you. For well, I suppose that. one inspiration I would take would be from um, I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett and his investing style and his whole perspective on life. And I've read many of his books. And one of the th you know, sometimes people will say something that will resonate with you and you hold on to it. And one of the thing, one of the many things he said that resonated with me was he said, I was lucky enough to be born with an affinity for investing at a time when there was a lot of investing opportunities. And OK, I'm far from Warren Buffett, that's for sure. But I, I you know, I feel that and, and, you know, you see what he's doing in giving most of his billions back. Uh, I feel on a minute scale, 
the same principle applies that you know we're all born with certain well certain gifts and everybody's gift is different and for me you know it took it takes a while to find out what your gifts are but one of the things i seem to be able to do was identify turning points in the market and, and profit from them and you know somebody else could be born with a much more important gift you know we, we look at the frontline workers who we now appreciate an awful lot more since we had the pandemic uh you, know, you look at mm. nurses you look at teachers my wife's a teacher uh they do far more for the world than you know bankers and number crunchers and, and traders and yet they don't get rewarded uh nearly what they should you look at engineers who build brilliant buildings and everything like that so i feel that i was just lucky to be born with that intuition at a time when you could make it something very profitable and uh somebody else may be born with a different intuition or in a different place or a different time and they work maybe much harder than I did and they don't get the opportunity so i feel that it's nice at least if you can give something back we've so much social inequality now uh even in a small way either by giving your time or making donations or whatever you can do you know mm. yeah i just looked up as well actually when you mentioned warren buffett's charitable donations um and in june i wasn't aware of this that he'd given uh, 4.1 billion dollars 2.9 billion pounds worth of Berkshire Hathaway shares to charity which is a stunning amount of money um, I'm shocked actually that that didn't get more publicity if well I'm he's, he's committed I think to give away nearly all of his money and it's, uh, it, he obviously connected with Bill Gates some time ago and I suppose the good thing is that they inspired other people to do likewise who may not have done so so the, the total impact of his decision is probably 10 times that 4 billion or will be over time you know uh and you know he he still lives in i think the same house and drives the same car pretty much as he did 20 years ago you know so uh yeah it's it's a good inspiration to have mm, i think he still lives in the same house i think so well. yeah yeah um anyway so one of the one of the posts that i saw you you'd made um around this kind of topic actually on linkedin um, was one about sort of the idea of philanthrocapitalism. And you'd written that a strong capitalist system allied with an underlying drive by the ultra-rich towards philanthropy is what works best um, in terms yeah. of uh, sort of attempting to redistribute wealth to, to help out the, the, the least um, or the most vulnerable or the least uh, well-off in our society. Uh, do, you, do you buy this theory? Well, that, that would be my theory as to what would work best whether it'll ever happen i have serious doubts i suppose i i was brought up you know i'm a lot older than you i, I, I was brought up in the 60s at a time when the unions were very strong and uh, you know take britain as a good example you know you had british leyland and other unions like that the mine workers union and they were running the show i remember even where i worked i worked for bank of ireland in my first job and at one stage uh, they built this is a true story they built uh, a new office and in order for the staff to work in the new office, which was 100 yards from the old office, uh, they insisted on a salary increase. Uh, they were prepared to go on strike if they didn't get it. Another time, the bank introduced a new check, which was going to make every uh, kind of a euro check was going to make everybody's life easier. The unions refused to use it unless they got a salary increase. That was the world that we lived in at the time. So I very much welcomed the arrival of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan at the time because I felt, 
you know, there's, there's too many people living off the state. There's too many people not working hard, uh, too many people feeling entitled and, you know, hard workers are not being rewarded, etc. And I think for the first, I don't know, five, 10 years, what happened was very good. Capitalism became in the ascendancy. But I feel, unfortunately, subsequent to that, you know, capitalism has been taken prisoner by the top 1%. I feel that they have gamed the system. You know, they have found a way to enrich themselves at the expense of everybody else. Uh, my theory, as you mentioned at the beginning, would be if you had a genuine capitalist system where people could work hard and get the merits from their hard work, but be amenable to spread some of their surplus back to, to reduce social inequality. I also would feel that we should ideally have some sort of regulations that would limit, you know, the ratio of CEO pay to pay of the average worker and so on, which absolutely exploded. And, you know, the sort of share option schemes that, that you know, people can generate, which very often will pay them massive amounts of money without them performing necessarily well. It just happens to be a bull market. So I doubt we're ever, ever going to get to my uh, utopian uh, theory. Uh, it probably won't ever be tested, I'm afraid. Uh, I mean, I'm not quite sure that's, uh, that seems like a very sensible system. I'm not even, I'm not sure I would use utopia as the word. That's like utopia is always, um, I know, I feel like a, a very far off yeah. ideal. So it's a little, little depressing if you think that, that very sensible, uh, those very sensible regulations are um out, that out of reach um, but uh, quite quite often one of the things that people bring up is that um the 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 ultra rich or however you want to describe them the top one percent uh ha use charity as um both a publicity stunt and a tax write-off rather than hoping to actually try and improve people's lives yeah. um and I guess that, yeah, that, that's often the, the criticism that would be leveled at people who, who advocate for sort of rather than heavier taxation, they would, they would argue for, as you've done, um, sort of a more philanthropic or generous, yeah, generous sort of sentiment amongst those people. Do you think, do you think that's, that's possible? Cause I, I know I've heard like psychological theories of people saying that once you, once you have, that amount of money you just sort of want more and more and more and you kind of lose touch with being able to help people yeah i i that's i suppose something that i don't understand i mean i you know we're all different i guess but to me once you have enough money that you can live comfortably what difference does the rest make i mean you know if someone came to me tomorrow and said you know we can give you a million dollars it probably wouldn't make any impact. It wouldn't change my lifestyle in the slightest. I'd prefer they give it to somebody who needs it more. But I mean, when you have these billionaires, and I can understand one thing. I mean, I think people, I certainly did it when I was, you know, going through my career as a trader. You regarded money as a scorecard, and you, you wanted to measure yourself against other people, and you kind of felt, well, if you were paid the most, you must be the best, and so on. And there was an element of that, uh, as opposed to money for money's sake. But I just don't understand when you have these billionaires, they have more money than they know what to do with. And as you mm -hmm. say, then they, they indulge all their space fantasies and so on, or they buy massive houses in 10 different countries. And uh, I just don't get that. Um, and, you know, unfortunately then, 
you have all, all, you know the the I think I saw a statistic uh, very recently where pay of the average worker in real terms over the last 40 years went up 11% and pay of the chief executive went up 17,000%, some some crazy number like that, you know? And uh, it just feels all wrong. To answer your direct question about the way they use charity, I think it's true. I think a lot of people use charity for tax write-offs. Uh, they've got smart accountants and financial advisors. Uh, a lot of people use it for PR and for publicity. Now, in some cases, fair enough. If you have companies and they, and they, they support, say, uh, non-profit foundations like the Shelter or many thousands other of charities that we have in various countries that do a great job and they get some good publicity out of you, say, well, fair enough, that's a win-win. But if you um, go to extremes, uh, then, you know, I look, I suppose, the, 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 the one I look at most, I look at Jeff Bezos. And I look at Jeff Bezos uh, since his uh, divorce with Mackenzie Scott. And uh, he has spent a lot of his money on kind of what you would describe as vanity projects, perhaps. Uh, and even the charitable donations he makes are very high profile. Mackenzie Bezos, since the divorce, obviously is an extremely wealthy woman herself and seems to have, uh, you know, allocated a huge amount of her time to making charitable donations across a huge range of causes and not really from the point of view of seeking publicity. And, you know, I suppose that contrast is probably the best for me. One person using charity the way it should be used and the other one may be at the other end of the spectrum. Maybe I'm misjudging uh, Jeff Bezos because I don't know the guy, but that's my initial impression, let's say. Mm, yeah, I mean, I haven't met the guy, but I... His actions with regards to Amazon workers don't scream charitable yeah, that, that's to me. Um, thing. When you see the contrast between him, you know, uh, spending billions on this space mission uh, to go somewhere where, you know, the Americans went 40 years ago. Uh, he's not actually innovating in that sense, really. And uh, then his workers, you know, don't even have time to go to the toilet. Uh, and uh, it's just, why can he not give everybody a 20% salary increase and just have 1 billion left for himself or whatever the number is, I don't know. But I mean, uh, that's the bit I just, everybody's together as part of a team in one shape or form. Everybody contributes something to the growth of the company. Uh, just share out the wealth a bit more, you know? Mm. I mean, yeah, the space thing, I have a, a slightly controversial opinion on the space idea because I'm not a fan of billionaires um, and multimillionaires hoarding their wealth offshore. Yes, yeah. um, so when I see them spending it on going to space, I'm like, okay, I'd rather they spent it because right. then at least it's going back into the economy in some yeah. way rather than sitting in some Cayman Islands bank account. Um, but, yeah. yeah. Um, then maybe maybe I just like space. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, so an, another one of the things that, that I, I've kind of seen you talking about, and this sort of pulls us back to um, 
something you said earlier, which is an absolutely fantastic quote. Uh, did you, uh, the, the capitalism has been taken prisoner by the top 1%. Uh, did you just think of that on, on the spot? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I read an awful lot. I've, I've been described by one of my friends as a quote machine, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> things just jump out of your head. Sometimes it's a line from a song. Sometimes it's a line from a Warren Buffett book or something else that you've read. And it just seems to fit the particular scenario that you're trying to, um, describe and there's some lines that you know fit so many different scenarios uh and uh, they just jump out then you know and sometimes you feel you've described something well maybe sometimes less so but uh just mm. comes to mind you know yeah and because the, the, it's, it's a discussion i've been having with especially with a lot of quite prominent um left wingers on the show um one of them being um paul mason right. whose interview will be out by the time this goes out actually um, who's a self-admitted Marxist, and I've been trying to ask them whether they think it's capitalism or corruption is the problem, because I tend to believe it's it's corruption, and quite a lot of them tend to think that capitalism itself is is the problem. Like, do you have a take on on that issue? I would totally agree with, with you. Uh, you know, I suppose I, I've always, when we spoke about the utopia earlier on, I suppose if you had a form of what I would call benign capitalism. That's what would work. I think the capitalist system makes a lot of sense in that you've got less money being wasted. You've got money being put to productive use. Uh, you've got a lot of innovation and so on. It drives all of that. Uh, I think the corruption, you know, an awful lot of what we look at and we look at stock markets and so on. And to my mind, they're ultimately all driven by fear and greed. And obviously the corruption is driven by greed as well greed of the people who want to bend the rules in their favor and maybe the greed of the, the rule makers who want to facilitate them. Uh, and that's really, in my opinion, that's where the problems lie rather than in the system itself. And we know, obviously, there are many countries where you've got, you know, Marxist type uh, governments and there's a huge amount of corruption there as well. So I think it's the greed that drives the corruption rather than the, the economic system that our political system that they live in. Mm, okay, that's an interesting take on it. So, uh, speaking of markets, uh, you made a post uh, recently about uh, the housing market in in the yeah. US. I think it was specifically um, where you kind of hinted at the idea that we are in a fairly similar situation in at least respect to the housing market as as we were in two thousand and eight in terms of um, we had like a big run up, it's had its peak and we're it looks like we're on the way down. Um, do you think that that's, that's the case, that the housing market has peaked? And, and is this an indicator that there may be another financial crash on the horizon? Um, I, I probably see those two issues separately in terms of the housing market and a financial crash. I think there are a number of things that okay. differentiate the housing market this time around from 2006. Uh, the first thing is I think that the rise in real estate prices was much more soundly based in the sense that it wasn't based so much on loose lending by banks. You know, in the, in the previous boom, we had banks where a 25-year-old could go in and get a loan and buy 10 apartments or condos uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, obviously the banks tightened back quite a lot. I think the rise in house prices in most Western countries has been driven by underlying solid demand. Uh, I think also you've had the, again, it's been driven by the zero interest rate policy 
Uh, and I, I'm sure you've heard the acronym TINA, there is no alternative. And what we've seen quite clearly in a lot of countries is a huge move by investment funds into buying, you know, whole blocks of apartments and whole housing estates. And clearly the reason they're doing that is they cannot get a yield on so many other assets, but, you know, bond yields are negative or close to zero in, in most cases. And I think some of the money that would have gone into bonds and cash is now going into real estate where, you know, these, uh, condos will be rented on, on long-term rentals and provide a yield. That all makes sense uh, from an investment point of view, but it, it puts more demand into the equation. Speaking specifically about, you know, countries, I think in the US, I, I think every, every bull market eventually sows the seeds of its own destruction in the sense that, you know, if prices keep driving higher, they eventually get to a place where the asset is not affordable anymore. And once it's not affordable and not enough people, can, once the marginal buyer is gone, the market has peaked. My view would be in the US that we maybe are just around that point now, that maybe when we look back in a few years time, we might find that the market peaked, you know, one or two months ago. Uh, I spend my time in the US in Florida. I feel Florida is a little bit different um in the sense that uh in florida in many senses it's been a big um move uh due to the pandemic the work from home phenomenon we've had a big exodus of people from wall street into uh west palm beach in particular uh like a mini wall street's being set up there goldman sachs have moved a lot of people there a lot of other banks and hedge funds have moved people there in miami there's a huge amount of uh technology uh, people setting up there and startup companies. And a lot of the people that you're familiar with in the crypto world seem to be going to Miami as well. So I feel that maybe Florida might be a year behind the rest of the US or maybe six months behind and therefore may not have peaked just yet. Um, you know, if I look back, I suppose my biggest experience was in Ireland. You know, I did sell at the top of the last boom. And to me, it was very recognizable that we were at the top at the time because the yield on real estate in, in the Republic of Ireland anyway, was like down as low as 2%. The mortgage rate was 4%. So the market was up almost 600% since 1990. So to me, all of the risk was on the same side. Likewise, in the US, I remember at the time going to an economic presentation and seeing a chart where it stated that the um, affordability ratio, the ratio of house, average house prices to average wages was two standard deviations away from where it had ever been. So to me, they were massive kind of sell signals, massive sell signals. And, uh, you know, I would have taken action at the time uh, accordingly. Uh, I, I think this, this kind of boom has been much more solid with kind of real reasons. And therefore, I don't think we would see a real estate crash of the same magnitude that we saw in 2006, 2007, 2008. Um, the stock market's another kettle of fish altogether. And uh, I believe that it's incredibly overvalued. I believe that, um, you know, the price earnings ratios are probably higher than they've ever been. Um, I think the actions taken by the Federal Reserve um, have really created a massive bubble. And 
The question is, you know, how long is that bubble going to last? To be perfectly honest, I would have expected that it would have blown already over the last couple of years, and it hasn't. Um, the nearest thing I can think about to try and make a, an analogy for it is, if you remember when you were a kid, the, the fable, the emperor has no clothes, that story, where the emperor was going around and he was claiming he had, he had invisible clothes and everybody believed him. And then uh, at one stage, some kid said he has no clothes. And the realization dawned. I, I genuinely feel the stock market's a bit like that. You know, there's a huge amount of investment in something that has either no intrinsic value or an intrinsic value way below what it's being valued at. You know, if you take Warren Buffett would say the stock market's a discounting machine. It's a, you know, it, it discounts future earnings basically. And, you know, he also said that what he buys is he buys businesses that if the stock market closed for five years, he wouldn't have to worry because the underlying business will be earning enough money that it's viable. It's a viable investment. I think we've way too many kind of unicorns that don't make any money. We have way too many companies who are effectively uh, selling a dollar for 75 cents. And they're, they're working on the basis if they grow fast enough, they'll get enough investment. They can do an IPO and then sail off into the sunset if they want, you know. And uh, that'd be my perspective. And I suppose the reason I feel that it hasn't crashed is that the Fed is just buying everything, not stocks, but they're doing the next best thing in terms of QE and so on. They're totally distorting the market. And, you know, if you ask yourself, what would the level of the, the Dow Jones be if the Fed had never done QE? You know, I think it would be so far away from, I think it would be less than half what it is now, you know? Wow, that's quite a statement. Yeah, I believe that um, very strongly. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you, you clearly know more than I do on this. Um, now, which action, when you say, uh, you said actions by the Fed um, over the last couple of years, um, I'm assuming that's not specifically re referring to um, the sort of, uh, I think it was, people have described it as Daddy Pyle turning on the money machine. Yeah. Um, with Jerome Powell, just sort of the, they've printed a lot of money over the last, um, or well, printed, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean, over the last 18 months. Um, so I'm assuming you're not referring specifically to that. What do you mean by actions by the Fed? Like what, what things have they done that well, you think to be honest, have led to this um, inflation and price of the stock In market? my opinion, this goes back an awful lot further than the last 18 months. Um, when I was a, a younger trader, a much younger trader, uh, you know, the Fed to me was a proper central bank. Paul Volcker was the chairman of the Fed. He was an amazing uh, chairman. He understood what central banking was about. Central banking is not about being popular. You know, most central bankers, if they're doing job properly, they're very unpopular. It's about supporting <laughs> the economy. And there's a big okay. difference between supporting the economy and supporting the stock market. And when Volcker was there, he supported the economy. He did what was needed to bring inflation back in line. He took actions that would make economic conditions better for companies. To me, that's what the Fed should do. And that's looking after, to take the phrase that's used in the States, looking after Main Street rather than Wall Street. Unfortunately, when Volcker left in 1987, Alan Greenspan came in and the whole culture of the Federal Reserve changed. It then became the idea these people, I mean, the Federal Reserve Chairman didn't want to be in the headlines every second day. That wasn't what his job was. He was a regulator. He was someone there to create conditions for the economy. 
once Greenspan came I mean, anyone who calls himself maestro, you know, you have to ask some questions. And uh, he wanted to be popular with everybody. He was the first guy who created what they call the Fed put. So anytime the market looked wobbly, he reduced interest rates. You know, uh, and the problem was prior to his arrival, I would say that monetary policy at the Federal Reserve and elsewhere was symmetrical. So in other words, when conditions were too hot, the Fed put up interest rates to cool things down a bit. When things were in recession or our economic growth was very soft, they cut interest rates to boost it again. But once Greenspan arrived, it became asymmetrical. Every time the economy was in trouble, he cut rates, but he never really put them back up to any great extent. And this is, I suppose, a very, it's the strongest feeling I have in, when it comes to markets and policy, because I think it's totally wrong. You know, he tried to kill the economic cycle. To me, like the economic cycle prior to his arrival, what you typically had was you had three or four years of growth and then maybe a year of recession. And in the recessionary year, you know, stock markets might drop about 20%. You could, it's like a market clearing event. The unprofitable companies and the companies that, that did dumb things, they got punished. And then, you know, things took off again. And the problem is we haven't had any market clearing events since 1987, apart from one or two crashes. And therefore, you know, the economy is never repairing itself. Uh, we've no market clearing event. Uh, the stock market goes higher and higher and higher and more and more unsustainable. And, you know, that's what I, that's where I feel we are now. I think we've a, a massive risk of a huge crash. I don't know when it'll happen, but if you think about it for one moment, in the U.S. economy, you have an economy that's had the biggest tax cuts they've had for the last 50 years. They've had the biggest stimulus for the last 50 years. They've had the lowest interest rates of all time. And despite that, it's still only growing at a moderate level. You know, so there's something clearly, to me, the economy has become like a junkie. That's requiring all of these, you know, quantitative easing measures, all of this money printing and so on. And every time the stock market drops, you know, the Fed comes running to the rescue again. And uh, that's what I feel is totally wrong. I feel it's immoral, to be honest, because in the old days, if you were a saver, take, take an ordinary person, you know, an average worker who works 30 or 40 years and looks forward to, to their retirement. And they can just mm -hmm. invest their money. At the time, they could invest their money in bank deposits or in government bonds that were safe, that would give them 5 or 6%. And they could live comfortably for the rest of their lives. They don't have that option anymore. They have the risk that there'll be no pension for, if they work in the public sector, they have the risk there'll be no pension for them in 10 years time. All pensions are underfunded. If they work in the private sector, you know, they have the risk that that money is going into the stock market that might crash. But the people who want to be prudent are not allowed to do so. And the people who want to be irresponsible and borrow truckloads of money are able to do so at very cheap rates. And we have all these zombie companies, you know? Uh, so that's what I, it's a hobby horse of mine. So I'd probably go on too long about it. Certainly on LinkedIn, I do anyway. <laughs> no, no, it's it's uh, you're 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 talking a lot of sense here, actually, more so than a lot of people that I hear talking about this. It, yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, you're making a lot of sense when you with what you're saying. Um, so 
what do you think is going on at the minute with um so a lot of people are pointing to the rate of inflation especially the consumer price yes. index and and things happening with with uh, yeah cost of living essentially um what do you think is going on there is that just sort of like a correction after the amount of money that's been pumped into the economy as excess or um yeah what do you think is happening there i suppose i don't i mean the Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, has said that it's trans transitory. You know, mm. I think he's talking his book. He, he has to say that because if he says something else, there's going to be a market crash. Uh, I don't believe it's transitory. It's in every part of the economy. You know, it's in the construction sector. It's in the manufacturing sector. It's in the retail sector. Shipping costs have gone through the roof. Uh, the cost of most materials are, are, are much higher. Um, you, you have a, a phenomenon in the United States where secondhand cars uh, were priced a couple of months ago at a higher price than the sticker price for the equivalent new car, cars that were two or three years old. Because it's been, Yeah, there was such a shortage of automobiles that people were bidding up the price of secondhand cars. Now, that's more to do with the shortage of computer chips than anything else. But that has that has made it created a big inflation in its own right. Car as a result, car hire, car rental costs are more than double what they would normally be. Um, you know, I don't think it's temporary. Uh, I think that it, it's building in. Whether it's like we haven't had inflation since the seventies and the eighties, and I can remember that well. Uh, and whether we're going back there, it's probably too brave a statement to say that we are. But I don't think we're going back to where the Fed claims we're going, which would be inflation, you know, averaging 2% over the next several years. Uh, and the longer they leave it, you know, the more that, you know, it's getting into wage agreements now. Once it gets into wage agreements, it's hard for to squeeze inflation back out. Uh, because if you have a wage agreement for two or three years, you get a whatever, a 4% increase that's locked in. And, you know, inflation, the other thing to remember is that inflation is a lagging indicator. It's not a leading indicator. So when central banks are doing their job properly, they have to get ahead of inflation. They have to front run inflation. So so long as they see some of the leading indicators going up, if they see material costs going up, well, they know if material costs are going up, that's going to reflect itself in wholesale prices in two or three months' time. That's going to reflect itself in retail prices three months down the line, and then eventually in wages. So you have to get in ahead of that and tighten policy. And clearly they haven't done that. And uh, so they're, they're well be. I actually posted on that topic on LinkedIn today, in fact, that they're, because the European Central Bank announced that they were going to start tapering. And they tried to use a different word. <laughs> they said they were going to recalibrate, but they're actually tapering. So the Fed is now, I think five or six banks have started to tighten policy, but not the Federal Reserve, who used to be the leader. Uh, and you can only assume that they're afraid to do so. They're afraid of what the implications will be for the stock market, you know? Mm. Now, I believe it was actually Paul Volcker, the, the former um, head of the, or former chairman of the Fed that you had mentioned earlier there was sort of credited through that period where he was in charge of sort of defeating yes, inflation or at yeah. least keeping it under control, yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting that we you think we're maybe sliding back to those sorts of times, um, or at least suspect that that might be the case. Um, now I, I want to go back to something that you said earlier about um, how savers cannot invest in in solid money yes. anymore because this is a this is a phenomenon that that has driven um, people to either um, sort of 
speculative assets like yeah. cryptocurrency or to investing in um, very, shall we say, risky um, strategies and options using platforms like like Robinhood. Yes. And uh, so I've I've seen you. I want to talk about both of these things, but start with cryptocurrency. Now I've seen you posting about about it like a, a little bit, and it seems like you're you're not his biggest fan, and you, you're not really buying the the hype. Um, so do you want to do you want to explain sure. for yeah. me why that is, and like what what your case is sort of against it, or at least not in favor? Yeah, of it? I, I think. Um... You know, I have posted a few times about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and so on. And I think in fairness to the people who uh, invest in that market and the people who are bullish on that market, it's probably fair to say that there's one part of their argument that I totally agree with, but the other part I, I don't at all. The part that I agree with is I think a lot of people invest in crypto because they share the sort of concern that I have about the devaluation of fiat money and what's happened. And I think the the biggest uh, mistake that was ever made was in the US was the break from the gold standard by President Nixon. I think it was 1977. Prior to that, the gold standard ensured that politicians had to behave. They had to be financially disciplined. Uh, and you know, if they wanted to, to spend more money, they had to raise more taxes and so on. Once the gold standard was eliminated, it, it took away all you know responsibility from politicians. They could spend what they want, so long as the market allowed them to grow the levels of debt, which has happened, and debt levels went through the roof. So, you know, I would share the concern that crypto investors have about you know the weakness of fiat money and you know your the value of your money being eroded and so on and the risk of that happening maybe to a greater extent in the future where i have a big difficulty is you know for me as an asset to invest in you know i always look at the nightmare scenario and i say well if if, if everything goes to hell in the handcart what's that asset going to be worth and you know uh for me, the asset I like best is real estate, because no matter what happens, if you buy real estate and if you buy with cash rather than borrowed money, which is what I do, you know, you can never be squeezed out by banks or whatever else. The absolute worst thing that can happen is you get a, a real estate crash. You know, prices maybe drop 20, 30, maximum 40 percent. But you still you can still rent the house. You can still live in it. You still get maybe a yield of four or five percent. Uh, and you can just sit down and wait for the next boom. It'll happen eventually. You know, in the last 500 years, the real estate market has gone one way with a few blips in between, literally. You know, a stock is only a piece of paper. Uh, and if the, a stock can go to zero, a bond can go to zero because the bond issuer can default. A bank deposit can, you know, unless the bank is insured, a bank can crash. And we, we saw that during the financial crash. Uh, so taking that on to cryptocurrency, to me, for most cryptocurrencies, the intrinsic value is zero. Even gold, and I wouldn't be a fan of gold, but I mean, you can make jewelry out of it, you can do certain things with it. It doesn't have a zero intrinsic value. And I do understand, you know, some of the concept behind, you know, Bitcoin and the blockchain and so on, and the rationale for having, you know, uh, the ability to track every transaction and so on. And maybe, I don't know, I'm not smart enough to know that, maybe 
just as we saw with the evolution of the internet back in the, you know, the 80s and so on, maybe it becomes part of the infrastructure for so many things in the future. I'm not sure. But my, I suppose my feeling is that with cryptocurrency, most of the people invest in, in crypto. Well, that's the point. It's not investment from my point of view. It's trading and it's gambling. So to my mind, if I was talking to somebody who was in cryptocurrency, I'd be saying, well, it's the same as going to the casino. And you may be lucky and you may make a truckload of money and some people have and fair play to them. But if you're, you know, if you're the last guy holding the parcel, that's what I always say when the music stops, you know, you're, you're snookered. Uh, if you're stuck with real estate when the music stops, you've still got a real asset. And, you know, that's my concern. I feel the investors in crypto for the most part are different. I feel they're different from traditional investors like me. It's, Maybe partly an age thing, but I think it's also a mentality thing. You know, if I look on LinkedIn, for example, and I try not to interact too much with crypto investors because they're very intense uh, about what they're doing. Uh, they have very intense views and uh, a bit like your description earlier. In a lot of cases, if you don't agree that they're right, it just goes nowhere. Uh, but it seems to me that crypto investors, there's a lot more technology people who are buying crypto. There's a lot more people who are kind of into gaming and so on. There's an awful lot of people who are not what I would call financial specialists. And I fear that in a lot of cases, there are people who are less experienced in investment. And I feel that in a lot of, not all, there's obviously some very smart people quite clearly as well. There's a, a lot of people who understand the concept of a, sh a short squeeze and how to make that work. Uh, uh, but... I do feel there's a lot of people who are take, who will be taken advantage of. I think crypto has attracted an awful lot of fraudsters and hucksters and so on and creating these coins. And you find that the crypto exchanges are moving from one uh, country to another to avoid regulation. Um, I think they will be regulated eventually. And, uh, you know, I think that it, it attracts, you know, proceeds of crime and money laundering and all that kind of stuff as well, because people you know, want to be invisible. Anonymous is good in one way, but bad in another way. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm afraid I'm quite negative overall for, the, for those reasons. Mm. I think you've identified, though, quite accurately why a lot of people, including myself, are quite um, positive, at least about the more um, popular and sort of the the most widely used cryptocurrencies yeah. in that it's, it's a belief that in the long term, the 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 technology and the underlying technology will become integrated with a lot of our systems and that's yeah. that's basically yeah. the the belief that a lot of people are operating on including myself right. um, uh, admittedly but the other reason that a lot of people are are interested in it and and especially at the moment with um what we've talked about in terms of the possibility for an sort of looming market crash at at some point yeah. um that uh, a lot of people i believe are buying it as a hedge against against yes. this um as as a belief that if if uh, if the market crashes and inflation starts to to spike that because it's not an inflationary asset like there's a finite supply that it will be more valuable and therefore more insulated to that but you mentioned that that you believe the best um investment um as a as a yeah hedge against uh sort of it can't really go to zero because everyone needs is is land 
Um, do you think that is why we've seen people like Bill Gates buying up a lot of farmland? Um, there's been a lot of reports of BlackRock and, and Vanguard and a couple of other really huge investment firms buying up massive amounts of property. Do you think that's them sort of hedging themselves for something that's coming? I think that may be partly the reason. I, I, in terms of the farmland investment, in terms of what I would have read or seen about that, my impression was that mostly happened two or three years ago. I think there was a big rise in, in land prices uh, you know, farmland prices and so on. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, I, I, it, it, it's hard to tell. But, I mean, it does, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it is a massive. And real estate obviously does extremely well in inflationary conditions. Uh, so, you know, if you haven't, typically your real estate rises at a faster rate than the inflation rate, or at least historically it has done so. Um, whether cryptocurrencies will do that, I really don't know. I suppose the other thing that irritates me about cryptocurrencies is that when I see the volatility is extraordinary. And, you know, I think to be advocating, you know, uh, money is meant to be a, a store of value. It's meant to be a medium of exchange. To advocate, you know, cryptocurrency as a medium of exchange to me makes no sense so long as it has that volatility. How can you go and buy something with a, a piece of crypto that could be worth 30% more tomorrow or 30% less? You know, uh, I think the whole El Salvador thing was hilarious in some ways, you know. Uh, and uh, Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, and, you know, if you want to have a, a country, you know, set up cryptocurrency, El Salvador is not the one you want. You want Switzerland <laughs> or someone like that, someone who, who's respectable and who knows how money works, you know. Um, so I would be more fearful in a crash that crypto could go to zero. And the other thing that irritates me is when you have the likes of Elon Musk and he just comes out and makes a tweet and crypto goes 25% one way and then he comes out and says something the opposite two weeks later, you know, an asset, an asset with real intrinsic value shouldn't behave like that. And it just becomes incredible. Now, maybe, maybe that won't happen forever. Maybe eventually it'll become more stable. Like if you ask me, where is, you know, uh, Bitcoin going to be in a year's time? Um, I have no idea. It could be 200,000. It could be zero. Now, if you ask me where it's going to be in 10 years time, I'm very inclined towards zero. <laughs> but I mean, it's, you know, you have momentum. I thought you were going to say no, And once it? you have the momentum and people are behind it, it doesn't matter whether it makes sense or not. As long as enough people buy something, it'll go up. And I feel... Crypto, go. I know some people who have invested in crypto and, and made some good money. And none of them are what I would call, you know, really astute investors. They don't have an investment background. They tried something, it seemed to work, and they had, maybe they had a gambling mentality perhaps. And uh, I would feel maybe they got lucky. You know, like... It, Go back to Warren Buffett again. Another phrase he had was two phrases that, that to me are relevant with crypto as well. He says, he says, a bull market makes geniuses out of idiots. You know, and, you know, <laughs> if you take, for example, the property market, you being in Ireland, you probably, you know, an awful lot of people in Ireland uh, during the boom, they had, they were builders, but they owned some land. Mm -hmm. And then the, the prices went up, they went through the roof and they convinced themselves that they were geniuses and they bought more and more. And they bought so much that they proved they weren't geniuses because most of them went bankrupt. Um, the other thing that Buffett says is it's only when the tide goes out that you see you swimming naked. 
And I also feel <laughs> that's a very good phrase. You know, it's very descriptive. Oh, that's and, uh, the tide will go out someday. I don't know whether it'll be next week or two years' time or whenever. But whenever the whole QE myth gets punctured, that's when the tide will go out. Or Inflation is the most likely. It always needs a catalyst. And inflation is probably the most likely catalyst. I thought maybe the pandemic might have been the catalyst, but it wasn't. But the inflation, because in the end of the day, the only way to battle inflation really is to put up interest rates. And if you put up interest rates, then the whole house of cards comes down because the U.S. cannot afford to refine itself, refinance itself at a few percentage points higher, nor can a lot of these companies that have massive borrowings. So that's probably the biggest risk. But, uh, yeah, I'd be much happier to be. I sleep very well at night being in real estate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've seen, I've seen reports that some banks are like 25 or 50 to 1 leveraged on, on some things. And it's just seems like it's just preparing for everything to come crumbling down at some point unless unless those reports are very inaccurate i'm not sure if you've seen anything along those lines i haven't seen those particular numbers but i do feel that you know banks you know we we were in that situation obviously in um in the great financial crash in 2006 2007 i think you know liquidity ratios and capital ratios were tightened after that I, to my knowledge, they've been loosened a bit in more recent years, uh, which to me is a huge mistake. Um, you know, I believe banking, you know, banking should not be a casino. Banking was all about lend, borrowing and lending money. And the primary function of a bank was to be the middleman and make the economy function that way. But obviously we've seen over the years that banks became much more involved in trading and risk-taking and it became a casino. Uh, and in some respects, maybe it still is. Maybe not to the same extent as 2008. And I would think that whatever the numbers are, they may not, whether they're the numbers you've mentioned or not, I'm not sure. But I think it still is a big risk. And uh, mm. again, you have, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the Archegos story, uh, which was a massive fund uh, who had money with Credit Suisse and several other banks. And they were kind of um, a non-bank. But, but the impact, I think Credit Suisse lost something like $4 billion, if not more. And mm -hmm. several other banks yeah, I, I thought that, were yeah, I've heard particularly it damaged. Billion. How many more Archegos are out there? We don't even know. Uh, mm. I would think that in an ideal world, you know, banks would be a lot more limited in what they could do, especially when it comes to, you know, depositors' money. I mean, we did have a situation in the past where investment banks and commercial banks were totally separate. And only commercial banks were insured by the, by the, by the Fed, uh, Fed, the FDIC, and investments banks were not. And that was different because then if you put your money in an investment bank, you knew the risk you were taking. Uh, but then investment banks were allowed to merge with commercial banks. We saw that. And then so the taxpayer had to come to the rescue when they all uh, lost their shirts during the great financial crisis. And... Um, that may happen again. It would, I mean, Janet Yellen came out saying uh, about a year ago or less, she didn't believe there would be another crisis in her lifetime. But, and the reason she said that was she wanted to loosen the capital rules. Uh, I mm. certainly think she's going to be wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, not a fan of Janet Yellen. She's, well, I mean, she and every other politician has taken obscene amounts of money from Wall Street. Um, yeah. And I just feel, yeah, the 
it's very difficult to to regulate someone when they're paying you for a speech more than your annual salary from the federal government. Well, that's, uh, that's funny. Just... I was that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, if you've heard Jan, Janet Yellen speak, how much would you pay for one of her speeches? <laughs> and then you look and see what she is being paid, like something like if I saw the numbers there, I remember there was a LinkedIn post, uh, and uh, I think it was something like between three hundred thousand dollars and seven hundred dollars per speech. So <laughs> you know, you have to say there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, why are um, why are people paying that amount for a speech? And you can draw your own conclusions. Just as I know, one of the other things you had planned to mention uh, was payment for order flow. You know, by mm. the hedge funds yeah, or the, the high frequency traders. You know, mm -hmm. likewise, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Why would they pay Robin Hood and and the other you know commission free brokers? Uh, money for all that flow. There's only one reason, so they can make even more money than what they pay. They're there to make a profit. There's no other possible reason. And they can front run uh, the market. I'm just reading a very good book, actually. I read the book. You've probably seen that one now, Flash Boys, Michael Lewis. And mm -hmm. uh, the one yeah. I'm reading at the moment, uh, which is The Flash Crash, which is a fascinating mm -hmm. one. I'm about three quarters way through it now, about the flash crash and how this guy crashed the whole market working from his parents' bedroom in a house in London, you know? And uh, it was all about the spoofing. If you're familiar with spoofing, putting in spoof prices that he never intended would. And he set up a kind of a computer program so the prices would always be a, a couple of ticks too far away to actually be hit. But he was putting in like 300,000 prices a day. He was responsible for something like 30% of all the outstanding contracts, this guy in his bedroom extraordinary but uh you know so that's you know when you look at robin hood and you look again the retail traders it's the same people to a large extent who are in crypto who are in gamestop who are in amc and so on and i feel that these big hedge funds like virtu and citadel and all these guys they're just there milking them you know uh, and okay now and again now and again it goes the other way and the little guy wins and i know everybody loves that <laughs> You know, the little guy wins because they put on a big short squeeze. But what mm. bothers me is the rationale for what they're doing. They're not buying game stock because they think it's a fantastic company. They're buying. Oh, well, I, I beg to differ, okay, actually, on GameStop by itself. Um, so I, I, I agree with you on, on a lot of the other yeah. companies on, on AMC yeah. um, particularly, but on GameStop because I have been so heavily um, in depth in the community of people who have who have been buying and continuing to add to their right. positions on okay. GameStop. The fundamentals of that company are something that the the the, the community, whilst many of them might have got involved for the yeah. reasons that yeah. you're saying, the reason that they're still there and the reason that I am still invested in it actually as well is because I actually believe the company is making really really good moves in terms of they've paid off all their debt. Yeah. They've got 1.7 billion in, in cash to spend and the digital transformation and the hiring that's going on is absolutely stunning. The amount of like ex Amazon and Google executives that they have brought in is amazing. Their online store has been transformed over the past nine months since Ryan Cohen came in. So on that one particular sure. specifically, I will disagree with you, but um, the, the sentiment uh, about the rest of it, I, I do agree, is it's um, 
and it's something it's 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 basically a sentiment that you expressed earlier about about how um people are treating wall street in a way is it's a like it's it's gambling it's it's a casino um yeah was the the term you used and that's that's very much the way that a lot of the people especially who got involved in trading on robin hood look at it yeah is that is like, look, Wall Street has been doing this for decades. They've been treating it like a casino. So why can't we? <laughs> yeah, well, I think in a way, sentiment. the answer in some respects is you're betting against the house and the house always wins. You know, the problem is <laughs> yeah. if you're betting against people who have a lot more information than you have and who have the inside track in, in a lot of ways, uh, it's very difficult. I think the whole concept of, you know, swarming over a particular stock and so on, it's maybe smart from a pure gambling stroke trading point of view that you can get enough people, but everybody, everybody's got to keep ranks and so on. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of people as far as I can see. But the problem is if the valuation of the stock doesn't hold up to the level you've brought it to, you have a massive risk, and that's what I would feel. Um, I would probably differ with, I can understand the rationale you've mentioned with regard to GameStop and you clearly know a lot more than I do because you, you're following it in detail. You're connected with that community. I'm not really connected with that community other than a few skirmishes on LinkedIn. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, but I suppose I would feel they've got rid of their debt because all of these people have bought their shares at very high levels and they've been able to issue. Uh, and, and that's a smart move. That's a smart move. Of course it is. Yeah. And and they're making, I wouldn't disagree that they may be making good moves. Again, you're closer to that than I am. But, you know, whether they will make enough money over the medium term to justify the kind of valuations that are on the stock, that's where I might be a bit more skeptical. But it's, just more, it's more my fear, yeah, that the way people are trading, uh, it's kind of making a short squeeze. It's kind of gambling to a certain extent. Now you say, uh, and, and I, I shouldn't be uh, differing with you, you know, that in, in this case, there are genuine fundamental moves being made. And, and mm. okay, if those moves prove to be successful, then you likely be right. And as we said, at, I think at the beginning of this conversation, that's what makes a market, having people with, with different views uh, makes it interesting. And sometimes there's no, it's not black and white, it's usually gray. You know, as opposed to one person being right. And, you know, you may be right at a particular time when the price goes really high. I could be right when it drops again. You know, we don't even a stop, a stop clock is right twice a year. So, uh, yeah. that's, that's yeah. what makes, makes a mark. My, you know, my only hope would be that people who are investing in those stocks understand one, clearly what they're doing, understand two, what risk they're taking. Three, that the money they're investing is money that they can maybe afford to lose most of it if they have to. They don't want to, but, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I invest in risky things every now and again. Not so much now, but in my early years, I invested in a number of startup companies. They seem to have great prospects. Uh, and But I invested in the knowledge that the money I was putting into those was, to my mind, a lotto ticket. So I invested in five or six startups. So to me, I bought five or six lotto tickets. And I bought it on the basis that if every single one of those went bust, it wouldn't change my lifestyle in the slice. So I, I put much smaller amounts than I would put into real estate or anything like that. And just as well, because they did all fall over. <laughs> they all had good, great products, ironically. Uh, one of them had a mobile wallet 
you know, 10 years before mobile wallets became popular. They were too early. Uh, no, no for the most part, it seems to me that people in startups, they, they can be great innovators, but maybe not good salespeople and maybe not good, definitely not good money managers. Uh, and they tend to burn so much cash flow uh, and so on. So, um, but I do, I, that's what I'm saying. When I made that investment, I knew what risk I was taking. And I think if people go into the crypto and, you know, the meme stocks with their eyes open, then fine. You know, they're big boys. And if they win, great. And if they lose, they can take it, so to speak, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more on that. I mean, the I think you'd actually be shocked at the, 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 the level of technical analysis that goes on sometimes because is the especially within the GameStop yeah. people, just because it's it's hidden behind this wall of we're all idiots and we just like the stock and you know it's all about the memes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like behind that is actually like quite a lot of of quite smart people, um, or at least seemingly quite smart people. As you say, a stop clock is is right twice. Well, a day, I, I so have once or twice. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Once or twice, you know, on LinkedIn conversations. You know, I've kind of, you know, read through a lot of the comments in the conversation and I understand what you're saying. There are some people who have a very good technical interpretation of what's happening. They have a feel for different levels on the price. They have a feel for where maybe options are being placed, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of kind of, you know, maybe good trading instincts. They have a feel for whether a short squeeze is going to work or not. Uh, what's happening and uh, you know as you say there's a lot of smart people um, and I, I wish them luck I hope they get it right um, time, time, time will tell maybe I'm too old yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah maybe we're too young and naive and it's you, you know, know it's <laughs> horses for courses as well I mean you know one of the things I learned over time there's, there's a guy called you may not have heard of him a guy called Dennis Gartman he's kind of a trading advisor and he provides an advisory service to a lot of banks and investment companies. And he's a trader. And uh, so every day he would give trading recommendations. And unlike most people who kind of economists who give forecasts and never get kind of queried on them a year later when their forecasts turn out to be totally wrong, he puts specific trades on the table every day so you can see how he's doing. But once a year, he sends a thing called his rules of trading. It's like the Ten Commandments. And one of the ones who always struck with me was, do more of what is working and less of what is not. And I think that applies in life as well as in trading. But so I think, you know, what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is we find over time that we all have our own little bit of expertise maybe, or maybe even just something works better for us. And, you know, a lot of the guys that you interact with maybe have a lot, as you say, a lot of technical knowledge. They maybe understand well how to follow cryptocurrencies and meme stocks who clearly move in different ways than other stocks might do or other asset classes might do. And uh, so maybe I don't have that expertise. Maybe I don't have that knowledge. Um, and I'm probably a lot safer sticking to the knitting, as they say, you know. Uh, I've probably missed out on a lot of profit opportunity. I mean, any, anyone who got into crypto in the very early days has made a huge amount of money if they stayed in quite clearly, you know? So, um, mm. but uh, each to their own, you know? Yeah. I mean, I have a few friends who've been telling me for many, many years and sort of pointing at me being like, I told yeah, you so. Yeah. 
<laughs> but um, you definitely have um, a lot of knowledge and, and just a fraction of which you've been able to sort of show here. So I, I really appreciate your time, John. It's been it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I really really enjoyed this. Likewise, chat. my pleasure too. I've enjoyed it. Um, is there anything that you want to like point people towards in terms of I don't know anything you want to highlight your work anything maybe the charity where they can find the only um, thing I would say is the, you know I think a lot of the people that I interact with you know a lot of them are kind of senior financial people whether it be financial advisors traders investors or whatever so they're quite well off people in many cases um, I'm sure some of your um, podcast listeners are are in a similar situation. Um, everybody has their own favorite causes uh, if they do want to support a charity. So it's never for me to say one is better than the other. I, I admire people that support any charity in any way. But what I would say is if anybody ever wants to get a perspective on a really well-run charity that, that makes a great difference, maybe just to flag the... Um, the website address of the shelter is uh, www.naplesshelter.org. And, you know, just have a look on the website. It's a, it's a brilliant website. It's very, very clear what they do. And uh, if anyone has a perspective or contact me on LinkedIn, uh, if they would ever would like to help out in any way, no matter how small or large. And I appreciate the opportunity you've given me to, to flag that on your on your podcast as well. Oh, not a problem, man. Um, I'll put the link for that in the description below if anyone wants Great, to. Great, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, not a problem. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. Great, thank you. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. Don't forget our sponsor, ExpressVPN, and my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, can both be found in the links in the description below. And also, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow. Until next time, thanks for listening. The animal dragged a child around at the closure. The child had fallen into that enclosure. Officials are now defending their actions. ABC's Alex. A few things I am not. I'm not a cat. I am not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. There's no panic selling. These people, you know, they may have bought at $4, sat through $400, went back to 40, went to 350, back down to 110, and they have not sold. All they've done is bought more. And there's no answer for that. There's no, they, they, you know, it, it is like art of war mastery by a bunch of idiots who should know better. And they're just, they're just like, I'm not fucking leaving. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars let me see what spring is like on jupiter and mars what's been happening on reddit and in social media and in the marketplace has never been seen before uh, the short 70 60 80 percent of a company let alone 140 percent i think a lot of people universally believe something is wrong there they're powerful they want to stock higher it's child's play why ever sell into the maw of Wall Street, you know, Reddit bets? Why, why, why? But everyone's wrong. It's like the big short again. Or more like the big short squeeze this time, right? So here we got the fox guarding the hen house. And one of the hens is complaining. The fox is out to kill us. And the farmer says, I'm sorry, 
The fox is in charge of the hen house. Whenever there is not billions, but like trillions of dollars involved in something, it I, I argue that nothing is off the table. The way they have absolutely cheated, stolen, robbed everyday people so all our hedge fund billionaire friends can get out and not get killed is one of the most remarkable, illegal, shocking robberies in the history of, in plain sight. Super Stonk and the other communities that have emerged are a hive mind, the likes of which we have never seen before. It's madness and brilliance, insanity and genius all rolled into one. It's very possible that Citadel will be gone in a few months. And, and not just Citadel, but the entire financial system has the potential to come crashing down. These crooks continue to gamble recklessly with the world economy, and this could be the moment that they finally get their justice. You've got maybe 10 million people doing this who now own, you know, probably more than 100 million shares. And eventually, you know, they might own everything.